Hey guys, before we begin today's episode, I just wanted to give a birthday shout out to one of my best friends, Kenny Stella. Though I have only known him a few short years, our shared loss of a mother has brought me great comfort, and our shared humor has brought me great joy. His support for everything I do has meant so much to me, and though this may be random to all of you, he is one of the reasons I do this show. I love you so very much, Kenny. Thank you for all you have done for me. And now, on with the show. Hello, my friend. It's good to see you again. And uh, not in the dark, right? <laughs> uh, me? Oh, I just thought I would have a nice picnic on the lawn here. Enjoy the nice day and the scenery. Speaking of which, you see that building over there? It's the Oregon State Hospital, an institution for the mentally unwell. You see that front building is called the Kirkbride Building. He was this... Well, you know what? I have my podcasting equipment with me. So why don't we fire it up and I'll tell you all about it. There are many words that can be used to unfairly describe a person's mental well-being. Words like crazy, insane, mental, and lunatic. And a lot of those descriptions largely hinged on what the standards of society were at the time. That last word, by the way, lunatic, comes from the Latin word luna to describe the belief that changes in the moon caused bouts of insanity. Ask anyone working in the medical field and they will tell you that places like nursing homes and hospitals turn into an episode of Supernatural around the time of the full moon. Hysteria is a much more derogatory word than we realize. It was first used by the Greek physician Hippocrates, and was actually meant, from what I can tell, as a positive thing. That is to say, while Hippocrates felt it was due to abnormal movements of the uterus and the body, he didn't mean it as an attack on women. But as you can imagine, as time went on, it started being described as, quote, the basis of female delirium particularly by the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages, who exercised, quote, hysteric women who were thought to be possessed by demons. Originally, communities took care of the mentally ill, but as populations grew, the need was becoming desperate for larger and more official facilities to take care of the increasing number of patients. The earliest known mental hospitals were created in 918 CE in Baghdad in Cairo, and in 1247, the first European facility was constructed. Located in London, it was called Bethlehem Hospital, now known as the Bethlehem Royal Hospital. And it originally was just that, a hospital. It's not known when exactly the hospital began to treat insane patients. It's asserted that the year was 1377, but soon after the facility went by another name, Bedlam of which the term became associated with chaos, confusion, and poor treatment, which was the general outlook of mental illness at the time. So, if you ever use the word bedlam to describe a chaotic situation, you can thank the Bethlehem Royal Hospital. Although, I don't know if thank is the right word. Little is known about treatments of the mentally infirm in the Middle Ages. Restraints were a major tool, but not much else has been discovered though things only got worse for the reputations of these places as time went on. Today, we have a much better understanding of mental health, its causes, and how to treat it. 
and we are a bit kinder to one another when we are having bad days. After all, it seems like in our current times, everyone has some sort of internal struggle like depression, anxiety, autism, and many other conditions. In our modern times, we have worked harder than ever to humanely care for the mentally ill in society. We don't pack people in tiny rooms, we don't send high-voltage currents through the brains of patients, and we most certainly do not run an ice pick through a patient's eye socket. Once upon a time, though, reality was just that, and so much darker. At one point in the history of the world, you could walk into the gothic facade of a brick building and never come back out. I'm Marcus Axford, and welcome to Oregon. Asylums were not always awful places. In fact, the word asylum comes from the evolution of several Greek words, one of which I can't pronounce, so forgive the lack of etymology, but two words that meant without and right of seizure created asulos, to mean inviable, again to asulon, which meant refuge, and then to the Latin word asylum, meaning place of refuge, hence the phrase seeking asylum. One of the many problems with asylums is that they were originally designed usually for around 200 to 500 patients. But because society had a wide range of reasons why a person should be committed, these buildings grew quickly. So quickly that what was once supposed to be a safe haven became something more nightmarish. One can only imagine how much better these facilities could have been had society not dictated the terms of an individual's personhood. But I am getting ahead of myself. Let's start with a man whose name I always get excited to see, Thomas Story Kirkbride. We can't talk about Oregon asylums without going over a brief history of the man who is considered to be the father of the modern American practice of psychiatry, and whose name is on one of the wings of the Oregon State Hospital. Thomas Kirkbride was born July 31, 1809, on a farm in Morrisville, Pennsylvania, to a wealthy Orthodox Quaker family. Over the course of his younger years and into his 20s, Kirkbride had several forms of education, including enrollment in the medical school at the University of Pennsylvania in 1831, and receiving a medical degree seven months later in March of 1832, if you can imagine. In our modern times, it takes a person eight years of medical school to get a degree. From there, Kirkbride went on to open his own medical surgeon practice in Philadelphia from 1835 to 1841, likely ending his practice due to becoming superintendent of the Pennsylvania Hospital for the Insane in 1840, with the first patients being admitted in January 1841 to provide relief for the hospital's South Philadelphia campus. Kirkbride believed very deeply in the humane care of the mentally infirm, and was a strong advocate for moral treatment, a philosophy that was based on respect and compassion for the insane. This led him to design what is known as the Kirkbride Plan, an architectural blueprint for how asylums should be laid out, with lots of windows and wings that gave as much exposure to light and air as possible. The Oregon State Hospital is a Kirkbride building, not just bearing his name on one of the wings, but if you look at old photos of an aerial view, you'll understand immediately what I'm talking about in the building's layout. And while the buildings have been updated in the last couple decades, they still show some resemblance to the old Kirkbride style. 
Sadly, Kirkbride suffered a prolonged respiratory illness in June 1883 until his death from pneumonia on December 16th of that year. He passed away in his home on the grounds of the Pennsylvania Hospital for the Insane at 74 years old. He served as a physician for 43 years, all the way until his death. His grave in Laurel Hill is plain in the Quaker style, a simple stone with his name, and the special inclusion of Doctor of Medicine after his name. But really, what could you put on his epitaph that could explain the weight of all the good he did? I don't really think there is anything. Oregon has had several asylums in its storied history, starting with the Oregon Hospital for the Insane in 1861. Founded by doctors James C. Hawthorne and A.M. Lorea as a temporary solution to the state's mental health care needs, it was located on Taylor Street between 1st and 2nd Avenues, and then later moved to a new building off of Hawthorne Avenue, east of Southeast 12th Avenue in 1862, to which the state of Oregon contracted with them to provide services to, quote, indigent, insane, and idiotic persons, court ordered there. I should probably take a moment to point out some of the terminology used for patients and individuals at the time. You have to understand that these terms were not used as harmful. They were the terms adopted for medical purposes to describe the mentally ill of the time. In terms of what Hawthorne and Lorea treated, it included things like mania, monomania, melancholia, dementia, and idiocy. As was the case with Kirkbride, Hawthorne and Lorea also believed in the humane care of institutionalized individuals, as depicted in the following quote from a visiting physician, Dr. S.J. Giltner, in 1868. In the summer of 1866, several acres of ground, shaded by a beautiful fir grove, were enclosed with a high board fence, and well provided with swings and various other fixtures for gymnastic exercise for the benefit and amusement of the inmates. Also games of ball, draughts, also known as checkers, and quoits, basically ring toss or horseshoes, were introduced, all of which is calculated to divert their attention and produce a soothing effect on the mind. The following named articles constitute the diet. Meats, uh, beef, pork, mutton, and salmon, both fresh and salted, for vegetables, potatoes, cabbage, turnips, onions, tomatoes, parsnips, lettuce, beets, beans, peas, etc. For drinks, coffee and tea, fruit of various kinds in season and dried when out of season. Bread of the best quality is supplied in abundance. Sugar and molasses are furnished at all the meals. The building is divided off into wards, each of which contains a water closet and a bathroom with hot and cold water for bathing purposes constantly kept in good order. This is a great convenience and greatly adds to the health of the patients. The whole building is constantly kept scrupulously clean and thoroughly ventilated. The dining rooms, kitchen, and bakehouse are well supplied with all the necessary fixtures and the most improved utensils are provided, all of which are kept neatly and in proper order. The dispensary connected with the place is always supplied with a good stock of standard drugs and is always kept in excellent condition. Sewing and knitting and ironing is the employment of the females. They manufacture the greater part of the clothing worn by the males and all that is worn by themselves, affording them light employment and relieving the monotony of their confinement. 
A limited number of the convalescent males is employed at different kinds of outdoor work on the farm and in the gardens. It would be a great advantage if more were so employed, as it would hasten their restoration, but the limited number of attendants will not admit of it. The clothing worn by the males is of organ manufacture, of good quality, and that of the females is calicose, or printed cotton fabric, and all are constantly kept neat and clean. The supply of water comes from an excellent spring, which is thrown into a large reservoir. The reservoir is on a high tower, built expressly for this purpose, with hose attached of sufficient length to discharge water on any part of the building. As you can tell, this facility was highly praised and state-of-the-art, reflecting on the compassionate values of its caretakers. In 1872, Lorea sold off his portion of the hospital to Dr. Hawthorne to move back to San Francisco, and in 1880, the state finally approved the funds necessary to build an asylum in Salem, after fighting about it since the land was secured as early as 1868. Let's detour for a moment and talk about Dr. Hawthorne, especially since you might recognize his name and some of the similarities he has with Thomas Kirkbride. Born in March 1819 in Mercer County, Pennsylvania, Hawthorne commenced the study of medicine under Dr. Bascom, then later going on to earn a degree from the Medical University of Louisville, Kentucky. He commenced practice in Louisville with his cousin, also Dr. Hawthorne, until 1850 when he moved to Auburn, Placer County, California, where he engaged in a large general practice as well as hospital work, gaining a beloved reputation for his skill. Later in 1845, Hawthorne engaged in politics and became a California senator, serving two terms. In 1857, he made the move to Oregon and the rest is, well, history. Despite living in the same state and having been in the same profession and only being 10 years apart, Hawthorne and Kirkbride, as far as I can tell, never crossed paths. But their buildings did. Sadly, Hawthorne would never live to see the new Salem facility finished. He passed away in 1881 of a cerebral hemorrhage at age 61, two years before the end of construction. Kirkbride, as we mentioned before, passed away in 1883 at age 74, the same year as the completion of the Oregon State Hospital, in fact. After Hawthorne passed, Dr. Simeon Josephi took over in his stead, and on October 23, 1883, upon completion of the Oregon State Hospital, both he and Hawthorne's wife, E.C. Height, transferred control of their patients to the care of a board of trustees consisting of state officials. During this time, 370 patients were transferred from Portland to Salem by rail, from here, the story of the Oregon Hospital for the Insane ends, and the story of the Oregon State Hospital begins. If you haven't already figured it out by now, the Oregon State Hospital is the oldest operating psychiatric hospital in Oregon, and one of the oldest continuously operated hospitals on the West Coast. Leading up to 1900, the Oregon State Insane Asylum, as it was called at the time, went through many changes. Two new wings were added to accommodate the influx of patients, gas to electric conversion was implemented, an infirmary was built in 1892, and in 1900 the campus was expanded to include two additional female wards and four male wards added to the main building. 
Another feature of the building that was added during construction is the infamous tunnel system that the hospital is known for to this day, complete with narrow-gauge railroad, although most of the rail system is gone now. These systems were used to transport food, supplies, and sometimes patients between buildings. The state capitol and other associated buildings also have tunnel systems, though none of them connect with the state hospital. In addition to the narrow-gauge rail, a standard-gauge rail spur from Southern Pacific's Greer Branch extended north from the penitentiary to the hospital, and part of this system still remains to this day, complete with rails embedded in asphalt within and outside of buildings 61 and 73 on hospital grounds. All of that sounds pretty great, right? When we hear the word asylum, we think of the darkest things imaginable that humans could do to one another. And yet, this wasn't always the case. So often, there's a period in a building's life where it's a beacon of hope for those in need. Unfortunately, nothing, as they say, ever lasts. The turn of the 20th century still saw two decades of improvements, including the official change of the name to the Oregon State Hospital in 1913, with officials citing that it was a more humane name for both patients and their friends and family, as well as the Dome Building in 1912 that offered hydrotherapy for patients. However, in 1923, that all changed. We won't talk too much about the subject today, as it has its own history to be shared, but the 1910s saw a rise in eugenics for Oregon, which, if you're not familiar with the term, it's basically forced sterilization of which the hospital participated in, performing the procedure on over 2,600 patients leading up to the 1980s. Other horrifying experiments and treatments throughout that time also included electroconvulsive therapy, insulin shock therapy, and metrazole shock therapy, the latter two being introduced in 1937. I won't describe them for you. I looked up insulin shock therapy and what I read was well, quite uncomfortable, and I'll leave it at that. On November 18, 1942, a mass poisoning from a dinner of scrambled eggs made 467 people very sick, and of those, 47 people died. Upon further investigation, it was discovered that there was a mix-up in the kitchen, and instead of using powdered milk, sodium fluoride, which was used to kill cockroaches, was used instead. In 1913, the same year that the building was renamed to the Oregon State Hospital, a new asylum had been constructed, the Eastern Oregon State Asylum. A great uncle of mine had been committed to the Eastern Oregon State Asylum, for depression of all things, and was treated with electroshock therapy and dosed with medication until he could barely function. Eventually, he was transferred to a mental home in Dallas, where he eventually passed away. I remember my mom and grandma taking me to get Dairy Queen with him and a friend of his. I know, the story doesn't tie very well to the building we are talking about today, but it's worth noting that there were more institutions than just our focus of the Oregon State Hospital, and I am sure we will touch on them again in the future. But for now, I bring it up as a personal touch, that even to this day, people are still affected or remember the atrocities these facilities forced upon their loved ones. In some ways, they still do, because darkness within the human heart never goes away completely. 
By the mid-1900s, the hospital was in dire straits. In the 1950s, the population of the Oregon State Hospital swelled to 3,545 patients, leading to the construction of several more facilities, including Damish State Hospital in Clackamas County and the Columbia Park Hospital in the Dalles. Combined with the Eastern Oregon State Asylum, Oregon State Hospital finally managed to get the population under control. While overcrowding continued to be an issue throughout the 1980s and 1990s, the bulk of the horrors finally began to end in 1981, when the practice of lobotomy was abolished, and later on, the eugenics program was finally dismantled. At the turn of the 21st century, the hospital's age was finally starting to catch up. In 2004, the Statesman Journal did a two-month investigation into the facility, revealing a multitude of problems, including outdated facilities, continued overcrowding, systematic problems that ended with drug addicts and alcoholics being wrongfully admitted, and severe understaffing and failure of the hospital to properly investigate and prosecute patient violence against staff. I once had someone I was related to work in the maximum security wing talk about how they would drag an inmate to a secluded location away from cameras and beat them in retaliation for the patient assaulting them earlier. It was uncomfortable to listen to. In 2004, Senator Peter Courtney took a tour of the hospital, and while there he discovered 5,000 copper canisters of human remains that had been stored in the basement of the original building for decades. Since then, officials have worked towards tracking down the families of the deceased, and Building 60, where they were later moved after being discovered, was turned into a memorial to house the unclaimed canisters. Although, as of 2014, officials claim that 1,500 of them might have been lost. In 2008, the Department of Justice filed a claim against the hospital claiming their poor quality of care towards patients, with a later report filed specifically detailing the death of a man named, and I apologize if I mispronounce this, Moises Perez, who was admitted in 1995 after being found, quote, guilty except for insanity, for attempted murder. Perez went missing October 17, 2009, and was later found deceased in the hospital from coronary artery disease. It has been unanimously decided that, had the hospital given better care and attention to its patients, Perez might still be alive. One question on your mind might be, with so much tragedy in one spot, is the hospital haunted? I can't say for certain. However, I can tell you that one of my best friends once worked in one of the buildings one night cleaning by himself. At some point, he began to hear crying, like that of a girl. And he heard it in a section of the building he was supposed to be alone in. He tracked the noise, and he noticed a room that had a light off that should have been on. And as he got closer, the crying became louder. As soon as he reached the room, it's as if she was right next to him. The moment he turned on the light, the crying stopped. And so did he. He immediately left the building and never went back in. Later the next day, he talked to his supervisor who informed him that he had just met the crying girl. Supposedly a child from the building next door in the adolescence center who died. It's certainly possible given the building's history, but I haven't found anything definitive. 
In 2009, ground was broken to begin reconstructing the hospital to address all the problems it had, including the building's 125-year-old Kirkbride frame. I remember watching the old buildings being torn down, and how sad it made me to watch decades of history get wiped clean with the swipe of an excavator. The reconstruction was completed in 2012, with the capacity increased to 620 beds. The Museum of Mental Health established in the old Kirkbride wing, and many practices updated. But even with all the improvements, the problems haven't gone away. Overcrowding persists, and people are still convicted for patient abuse. Like I said, darkness in the human heart never really goes away, whether you're the one in the chains or the one holding the key. I hope you all enjoyed today's history lesson on the Oregon State Hospital, as well as some of the history of mental health in general. One last thing before we go. In 1975, the hospital played host to a film with what we consider today quite an all-star cast, including Jack Nicholson, Danny DeVito, Christopher Lloyd, and the beautiful and talented Louise Fletcher as the formidable Nurse Ratchet. A story of a man sticking it to the system who ultimately got stuck in the system. That's right, I'm talking about the award-winning film directed by Milos Forman, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. But that is a story for another time. Are you hungry? I have plenty of food with me. It's almost as if I anticipate running into you. <laughs> uh, uh, I also have some time if you want to come check out the museum with me. I haven't had the pleasure yet. Oh, don't worry about the entry fee. I'll cover you. Let's finish up and then go check it out. I'm sure it will be a mind-altering experience. <laughs> uh, poor taste? Poor taste. <laughs> Let me just check the time real quick and... Oh, drat. I actually have a prior engagement I have to take care of. Here, take everything you'd like to eat. You've earned it. Until next time, my friend, stay safe. This episode of Welcome to Oregon was researched, written, and narrated by me, Marcus Axford, with research help by Jessica Axford, Leah Palmer Rye, and John Palmer Rye, with additional contributions by Kenny Stella. If you have an idea for an episode or you just want to say hi, email me at welcometooregonpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram, where we post pictures of research trips and updates of episodes, and a quick search on Facebook will take you to our group page, where you can share your stories and discussions. It's also where I'm keeping everyone updated on our website I'm working on, as well as our commerce page, where you'll be able to help support us while also buying all kinds of cool merch for yourself. I hope you enjoyed today's episode as much as I loved writing it. And until next time. Thanks for listening.